This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. The 28th. Wow, what a day. There are so many moving parts to this market story today. I barely know where to begin. Let me just give you a brief pricey. I'm going to bring in Christina Kino. She's going to be with us throughout the hour. She's going to provide the smarts to my slightly smoked brain today, I tell you. Uh, the Japanese yen down by 2%. The Chinese currency being smoked today. The British pound is down by 8 tenths of 1% with the 124 handle. Euro dollar trading with a 104 handle a little bit earlier on. Stocks are generally bid. Gas is down fairly sharply. Bonds are on offer. The story is all about that strong dollar, Christine. Absolutely, Guy. Dollar is king. This is the refrain that we kept hearing all throughout the day, really all throughout the week, because it has really been a story amounting to that dollar strength because everyone else is so weak for a number of different reasons. But it all amounts to one thing, which is the dollar is higher and could possibly breach even higher, even after hitting that two-decade high on the ice dollar index. I, it is amazing to see what's happening. And the, the rate of change is really what is frightening here. Usually when things move this quickly, something breaks. We're going to be talking more about this throughout the show. Vince Signorella is going to join us in just a moment. Before we get to Vince, let's get to Charlie. Here are the headlines. I Thank you very much. And here's what's going on. Lots of moving parts today, as you correctly point out, Guy Johnson. President Biden, I begin in Washington. President Biden is asking the American Congress to provide $33 billion, about 26 6.5 billion pounds from military, economic, and humanitarian aid to Ukraine, as well as the power to seize and sell the assets of wealthy Russians. The plan includes money for military and security assistance for Ukraine, economic assistance to help support the government in Kyiv, and funds for humanitarian assistance along with global food security. Markets in America certainly focused on earnings. Later today, we will be hearing from both Apple and Amazon after the bell. Earlier today, we heard from Twitter. Twitter in one of its last earnings reports before Elon Musk takes the company private, reported revenue that missed analyst estimates reflecting a slowdown in advertising. In the United Kingdom, Jay Sainsbury said profit will fall this year as normal shopping habits return following the end of lockdowns and as shoppers feel squeezed by the higher cost of living. The supermarket chain forecast underlying profit before tax of £630 million to £900 million in the year through March, citing significant external pressures and uncertainties. Sainsbury today down for a third day, falling by about 4.3%. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Uh, as Charlie says, many moving parts today, lots to try and figure out. Let's bring another voice into the conversation. Bloomberg's macro strategist, Vince Signorella. Vince, we, we've started the conversation. We're talking about what is happening with the dollar, king dollar, as it's certainly being labelled today. The, the rate of change here is what really, I think, is, is catching a lot of attention. What do we make of the rate of change? What is happening here? And how kind of disturbing is this for global markets? Well, I mean, the rate of change in, in uh, the dollar has always been what catches central banks' eyes. Um, you know, they never uh, usually react uh, to 
um, you know, the dollar moving in one direction, um, you know, for uh, it's the volatility and the rate of change uh, that's disturbing to uh, central banks, generally speaking. And what we're seeing is pretty much really a one-way uh, straight line for the dollar going higher. It's so far not really been on um, any central bank radars. We haven't heard any uh, too much uh, squawking about it in general. But what's going on in the world generally is leading to this higher dollar, and it's uh, potentially going to continue for a little bit. My, my guess is um, after next week in the FOMC, we might see it uh, peter out just a touch. Now, Benzino, any time that we get this kind of dollar strength, of course, I I find that a lot of strategists, investors, traders, what have you, uh, start dusting off their uh, dollar smile theory knowledge. Uh, As as our our, uh, listeners might know, it is the theory coined by Stephen Jen, which posits that the dollar rises on two occasions. Either it's being buoyed by haven demand or it's being buoyed by exceptional U.S. growth, U.S. growth outperforming the rest of the world. What do you think is powering this? Why, why can't it be both? Okay, before Vince jumps in, because yeah, it feels it to me like it could be both at the moment. It could be both. It could be both, indeed. But what do you think, Vince? Okay, like what you know, what I'm getting from traders, and I speak to at least what's going on right now. There are think what is driving the dollar higher is. So you've got lockdowns in China slowing global growth. The U.S. probably a little bit more immune to that than. Um, uh, some other countries, so positive to the dollar. Uh, seeing a lack of inflation in Asia, which is keeping central banks at bay for the moment, while we're seeing high inflation here in the U.S. driving the Fed and and the hawkish rhetoric, which has now have traders pricing in 350 basis point rate hikes for the next three meetings. A little aggressive for me, but nonetheless, that's still out there and that's driving yeah. the dollar. We also have month-end buying with the stock market coming off. You have repositioning by portfolio managers going into month-end, which skews dollar dollar buying, which should, as we approach the month-end, uh, peter out. And, of course, you've got the Russian-Ukraine situation, specifically what's going on with the components of natural gas driving both inflation higher and supply chain disruptions continuing. All of those things are, are helping the dollar go higher. The question is, how long do they persist and, and when does the dollar sort of take a breath? So, so here's my theory on this, and you can both shoot me down because, to be honest, like I'm the jack Let's of all trades. Let's I'm, hear I'm it. I'm the jack of all trades and know nothing. You, you basically, <laughs> I hear what you're saying about Stephen's sort of smile, the, the dollar smile. But at the moment, what I'm looking at is a yen that used to be the safe haven not acting as the safe haven. The euro's got all kinds of problems. We've got the war happening in Europe. You've got what is happening with the, with the, with the UK. Switzerland's kind of caught up in that as well. And it basically, you're left with the dollar. So you've A, got really strong US growth, despite today's GDP number, which, as somebody said to me a little earlier on, it's a little bit of a pothole and it's going to bounce back quite strongly. But you've also, so you've got the safe haven flow because you don't want to go anywhere else. And so you buy the dollar and you've also got U.S. growth, which is super strong as well. So you've got both of those two things operating at the same time because the yen ain't fulfilling that role anymore. Thoughts? No, well, I will tell you this. I mean, in terms of yen being a haven trade, that's always been perplexing for many of the foreign exchange traders uh, that, you know, that me who have traded and those uh, who are still trading. Um, the yen should never have been a haven play. The only reason why it was a haven play is it's uh, one of the largest uh, fixed income markets in the world. Yep. So it was Big a, it was a, a haven play 
for investors having nowhere else to go. That being said, the world is now reverting back to where the real haven play is the dollar, and that's what's going on now. And it's not uh, not a matter of people looking where to go, but rather uh, the only place to go. And on the note of the exactly. economy and what you were just mentioning, tomorrow, personal income, personal spending. So let's not forget to see where the consumer is in this, because wages have not been keeping pace with inflation. And we're going to see what that, it, that shows up tomorrow in both the income and the spending habits of U.S. consumers. So perhaps the new framework then that maybe we should be thinking about when it comes to the dollar is TINA, isn't it? It, it, it seems like it's a TINA yeah, situation yeah, yeah. in currency markets. Yeah, somewhat. I mean, there really is there really is like not a lot, of, a lot of other places to go. You certainly don't want to be in Europe with Russia threatening potential nuclear weapons. You don't want to be in emerging markets because with higher higher rates and and emerging market uh, debt being financed in dollars, it, it is not a positive. And at the moment, you really don't want to be in Asia with what's going on in China and what what Japan is struggling with. Vince, you're a bit of an expert on sterling, so I just want to get your quick take on that, because I'm seriously concerned that I'm never going to be able to visit the United States ever again in my life. I remember going once when it was two to the uh, to the dollar. We're now trading 124. Again, have we gone too far? I, I, temporarily, I would say no, because you, you have the no. inflation situation in the UK where you know a lot of uh, a lot of inflation in the UK is imported. You still have the situation going on in Europe. But at the end of the day, if this makes you and your listeners feel better, I've touched sterling four times in my life as a trader over the course of forty years, and the average price is around one fifty five, one sixty. So I think fair value for cable over the long haul is about thirty big figures higher. We just have to get past what's going on at the moment. You're breaking your hearts over here, Vince, really, truly. <laughs> um, what about the euro then? Because, because it's interesting that actually the pound is underperforming the euro, but in some ways the euro is closer to the action. Yes, much so. And I, I think the euro is a, a very real possibility. We could see euro at parity before this is all over. Um, you know, in, in the end, you know, Europe is still going to have to get past the growth issues, still going to have to get past... Uh, the inflation issues that they have uh, in the long haul. Uh, I do like sterling over the euro. I think that uh, I think that Europe has a little bit more of an overhang than uh, the UK does um, going forward, especially with the situation where Europe has put themselves in a box being tied so closely to Russia with their energy scenario. I mean, that's something that's definitely going to have to change if Europe's going to get their economic head on straight going forward. And what do you think then are the implications if we do get that parity level for euro dollar for the ECB? I know that they're walking a tightrope at the moment between growth and inflation. They have flagged that potentially rate hikes will start in the third quarter. What's your take, Vince? I mean, well, it should help on the inflation front because they do need inflation to pick up in order to keep pace with, with the Fed. So if we do see the weaker euro, uh, it, and that implies uh, more inflation as the cost of goods go higher, uh, we would see the ECB start to follow suit a little bit more so with the Fed. Uh, that might support the euro a, a touch as long as, um, as long again as growth keeps pace with that inflation scenario. But uh, again, the underlying, you know, the the albatross and the, you know the, is, is still going to be the Ukrainian situation. And until that's resolved, it's really difficult to see the euro going going any higher. Christine, what do you think? I, so so. July, I'm, I, a lot of people are kind of in the December, October, December kind of camp in terms of ECB rate hikes. I was fascinated to see the Riksbank being pushed around 
by the market today. Massive U-turn. We're not going to raise rates. We're not going to raise rates. Yeah, we're going to raise rates. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we've seen this story time and time again, haven't we? I mean, that's exactly what happened to Bank of England toward the fourth quarter of last year, certainly getting pushed around by markets. And more and more, that's kind of a very similar way that it played out for the Fed, arguably. And so now traders are descending upon some of the more dovish, shall we say, um, uh, policymakers on the spectrum that would be the ECB, that would be the Ricks Bank. And the Ricks Bank probably offering some lessons for the ECB as well when it comes to dealing with market expectations expectations and balancing that with their own mandates. Somebody said to me earlier on that basically Swedish PMIs are a two-month lead indicator as to where the Eurozone goes. Like it's an open export economy. It does a lot of industrials quite tied into Germany. Is this, can can I basically take the Riksbank as being a two-month delay on where the ECB is? Because that that puts me mid-summer in terms of rate hikes. Yeah, it could potentially be that. I mean, the 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 I like the idea. Rick's Bank being the canary in the coal mine yeah. for for the ECB. What do you think, Vince? Well, I I think that if when you look at all of the central banks and all of the forecasts, and and the Fed really is 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 to me the standout on this is that one thing people have to really get their arms around and 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 look at the central banks as not being, you know, the the guardians of the galaxy, if you will. They are notoriously awful with forecasting the interest rate cycle. And the markets have basically spanked the Fed and told them exactly where they should be in the last six months or so. How many times in the last six, well, prior to six months have we been hearing transitory, transitory? That's no longer part of the conversation. The markets have basically said to the Fed, you are dead wrong. And the Fed is now in a place where they see they need to catch up. The question is, are how far do they need to go? Yeah in order to catch up to where the market is. Has the market gone too far? Has the Fed been too hawkish? Remains to be seen. My feeling is that, especially after seeing the GDP numbers today, we might see a, a tad more neutral Fed next week, and that the, the, you know, the, the risk scenario might be a little overdone in terms of uh, higher yields and a higher dollar. Obviously, it remains to be seen whether I'm right or wrong, <laughs> but um, I, it feels to me that they've gotten just a little bit ahead of themselves and in trying to catch up to where the market is, and the market in itself may have gotten a little bit ahead of itself. You, you want to know, I think, I think it's, this, this is a fun fact. I think transitory is one year old today. From when it was really? Really? I'm going to look this up. That's how quickly we've moved in terms of the narrative here and how wrong they were and how quickly the Fed ultimately has had to shift the ground. I, many people like Mohammed Alarian were arguing way before that that they had to move. But I think it's I, I, Christine's going to fact check me here and I'm sure I will I'm end up being wrong. You. But I don't think I'm that far off. Uh, Vince, great to catch up as ever. Really appreciate the time. Bloomberg's Vince Signorella joining us on where we are with these foreign exchange markets. The dollar's giving back a little bit of ground right now, but not much uh, retreating from session highs over the last few minutes. But nevertheless, we've been watching this story very, very carefully. uh, And certainly that data tomorrow out of the United States is going to prove pivotal. We've also got, remember, uh, inflation data coming out of France, Italy tomorrow. uh, And we've also got Eurozone inflation data coming up. The focus continues to be, of course, on what is happening with the gas market, what's happening with the Ukrainian situation. Up next... We'll get an update from Ross Matheson on what's happening there. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
evening, welcome back. 5.18 in the City of London. You're listening to The Cable this evening with Christina Kino and Guy Johnson. Uh, let's talk about the situation in Ukraine. President Biden, over the last hour uh, at a press conference, um, talking about the fact that he has asked Congress for $33 billion in emergency funding for Ukraine. That money is designed to last uh, over the next five months. The president speaking to reporters, saying that Putin will never succeed in dominating Ukraine. U.S. officials uh, briefing the press as well, talking about the fact that Russian forces are making heavy weather uh, of the assault that they are currently uh, trying to push through in the east of Ukraine, in the Donbass region. Russia making, quote, slow and uneven progress in the Donbass, according to U.S. officials. Let's get a briefing now on what the situation actually looks like. Bloomberg's Ros Matheson joining us on the line. Ros, bring us up to speed. We focused a lot over the last few days on what is happening uh, with the gas supply situation, what is happening in terms of rearming the Ukrainian forces. What is happening in terms of actual combat and where we are in terms of the Russian offensive? Well, we are seeing continued efforts by Russia's forces to try and take further ground, particularly in the east, again, in the south of the country. But as you notice, it's pretty heavy going. That's even as they're perhaps better positioned than they were in their efforts in the north, where they made many tactical mistakes and were really unable to gain territory at all. They are gaining some ground in the east, but it's very slow going and they're racing the clock in a way, because as you noted, uh, countries are pushing to get more weapons into Ukraine with speed. That includes the heavy artillery that's been really, really effective against the Russian forces so far. The US is sending a whole lot of howitzer uh, uh, artillery uh, brigades into the country. And so as more and more of that comes in, it's going to become even harder for Russia to make those gains. So in essence, what we're seeing perhaps is a real effort in the next couple of weeks to to really bed down their control uh, beyond the areas of the Donbass that they currently already have. Now, Roz, away from the front lines of the war, of course, again, news today that President Joe Biden is seeking $33 billion in aid to Ukraine. But how much do you think this actually helps? Is this something that is significant in terms of actually turning the tide in the war? Or is it really more a matter of getting those uh, weapons in the ground and rearming the Ukrainian forces? Well, certainly the money that goes into weapons helps, as does the money for humanitarian assistance, because there's really a large crisis both inside Ukraine and in its periphery with the many people who've had to flee Ukraine to neighbouring countries and seek refugee status in effect as a result, and also a lot of damage that's been done inside Ukraine. So that is immediate assistance that can have an impact uh, straight away. But what it also is a recognition is that the US sees this war dragging on for many, many months yet. This is money that would effectively be channeled through to the end of September at least. And that means that the US is acknowledging this war is going to grind on at least uh, for some time yet and that they need to keep funding uh, support for Ukraine for a long time into the future. The, the Russians are making it very clear that attacks on their territory are unacceptable. We've seen a series of those over the last few days, uh, some of them certainly more significant. The, the attack on the, um, the refinery, certainly hugely significant. Western weapons potentially could be used in those attacks. The Russians are making it clear that there will be reprisals if that's the case. Just how much of an escalation could this be? Well, it's a very delicate dance because Ukraine officially doesn't acknowledge that it's attacking Russian territory, although there's evidence 
that that is in fact occurring at least sporadically close uh, inside the Russian border and targeting uh, fuel and other infrastructure that's in that area. But equally, the, the amount of uh, material that's gone into Ukraine in terms of anti-tank, anti-aircraft missiles and anti-ship missiles is being used directly against Russian forces already. And that's Western equipment. Um, that's hitting uh, Russian tanks, planes, and, and possibly the warship that was sunk recently in, in the Black Fleet. So, from the Black Fleet. So, either way, uh, the West is engaging Russia in a de facto military fashion. Of course, it's a much bigger thing to have NATO fighter jets directly confronting Russian fighter jets. But there is a bit of a de facto thing going on here. And the risk is at what point does the Russian president decide that that really is, in effect, a conflict uh, now between Russia and with, with NATO? Now, Roz, Victory Day, as we know, is coming up in Russia. That's on the 9th of May, so in a couple of weeks. And some say that Putin might use this as a marker of sorts for Russia's progress in the war so far. What's your take on that situation and how could he possibly frame uh, what Russia has done in, in Ukraine coming up to that day? Well, that day is probably important more than anything for the messaging from the Russian president to his people at home. Of course, there's a very tight level of control and information inside Russia, uh, including on social media, but certainly pushing the government rhetoric out on radio, TV and in newspapers. And so they're hearing at the moment the one thing, which is that the what Putin calls his military operation in Ukraine is going entirely according to plan. He's maintained that all the way along, even if it's clearly not the case on the ground. So what he needs to say again on May 9 is that he's managed his objectives so far uh, within Ukraine. But that probably does mean he's got to show at least that they're controlling more territory than they are now. And that's, again, perhaps why, the, why his forces are pushing aggressively in the east. Of course, uh, they're not making as much territory as they probably would like, but at least it might enable him to say to his people um, that he's achieved at least something in the east part of the country. Ros, if things go badly, can we assume that there will be further gas cuts in terms of supply? Are we now directly linking what happens on the battlefield with the supply of energy to Europe? It's an interesting question because it, it's a bit difficult to know what was the, the motivations of the Russian president in doing this to begin with when he made this statement that they had to pay in rubles because it's not something that he can then publicly backtrack from. He needs to save face um, also with his own people on it. So in a way, he has to follow through. But you can see already Poland and Bulgaria sort of looking for other ways to ensure their gas continues yep. despite this and does that mean that he then turns to other nations the big one in that of course would be germany ross matheson as ever fantastic coverage really appreciate the work that uh, you and the rest of the team do in bringing the amazing coverage uh, to us here at bloomberg uh, up next we're going to stick with that gas story and try and get an understanding of actually where we are bulgaria and poland have been cut off who could be next this is bloomberg This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Quick check of where we are with the markets. U.S. equities actually having a fairly good day today. The meta numbers lifting certainly sentiment uh, on the Nasdaq. It's up by one and a half percent, but the S&P is up by 1.4 percent as well. We'll talk more about that in the back end of the show. Talk more about what's happening with Twitter as well. 
In terms of European equity markets, the FTSE 100 uh, definitely uh, having another fairly good day today, despite actually some um, underperformance coming through for the mining sector. That sector, that market, sorry, up by 1.13%. The DAX uh, up by 1.35%. The CAC up by 9 tenths of 1%. But the real story has been elsewhere. It's been in the currency markets. The British pound under real pressure today, uh, down trading versus the US dollar, the cable rate, which we should talk about on this show, uh, at 124.45. So those are the markets. Here are the headlines. Charlie Pell. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on on this Thursday. Busy day, lots of moving parts, as you mentioned earlier in the program. Middle Eastern petrostates are helping Europe make up for a drop in diesel supplies from Russia. Flows of the transport fuel from the Persian Gulf to Europe are set to rise almost one. 130% this month to 379,000 barrels a day. This according to fixture reports and tanker tracking data compiled by Bloomberg. That, by the way, is the highest number since October of 2020. Europe's response to Russian demands that gas may be paid, must be paid for in rubles is in disarray as companies are seeking workarounds to keep vital supplies flowing and governments tussle over how hard a line to take against Moscow. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen warned companies yesterday not to bend to Russia's demands, saying that doing so would breach sanctions. Crime levels in England and Wales rose 18% last year from levels prevailing before the pandemic, driven by a jump in fraud and computer misuse. The data cited by the Office for National Statistics also showed a decline in theft and incidents involving knives and firearms during 2021. And the Bank of England is raising staff pay to hire a chief press officer despite the governor's call for restraint among Britain's workers to prevent a wage price spiral. According to an ad on the BOE's LinkedIn page, the full-time post will pay about £113,400. That is a significant increase on the current incumbent's wage, according to sources. It's also not far short of the £156,000 that the four external policymakers who set UK interest rates are paid. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie, just before we go, and very briefly, the pound is pretty cheap right now. When can we expect to see you? We're trading 124. You must be a happy man. I, I'm so, so delighted. And the answer is you will be seeing me in September. Money has changed hands. Yes, I finally got my narrow boat voyage all planned from Chester over to Langoughlin. Can't wait to explore the UK's economic history. Can't wait to spend seven days on a narrow boat meeting new friends and exploring yep. all that... England outside of London, and I love London, don't get me wrong, but this is a chance to explore so okay. many other wonderful places in England. And yes, I want to emphasize that amazing economic history and building the UK's canals. Can, can I just say that if, if anybody's listening and they are along the canal route between Chester and where was it? Uh, Chester and Langoughlin in Wales. Right. Charlie's buying the beers. <laughs> Without a doubt. he's buying the beers. And, and you know what the funny thing is? So I reached out to the canal operator, and he asked if I had any special. And as, I, as I told you before, I said, yeah, I want English biscuits, and I want cheap English beer. So that's, uh, well, you know, it tells you about English my taste. Beer, to be honest, I, with the currency where it is, you're in good shape. You're yeah, in good wonderful. shape, Charlie Pellet. Sounds good. We look forward to seeing you. My uh, I, I hope, from my point of view, that the pound is a little bit stronger by then. 
I've just been told by Christina Kina that she's going to the States for three months. So this is not in my own personal interest. This is gonna this is gonna sting a little. Um, let's talk a little bit about what is. Thanks, Charlie. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the energy markets. Um, we have seen Poland cut off. We've seen Bulgaria cut off. There is a lot of debate about how you should pay for gas. And it looks like it's going to be Germany versus the European Commission in terms of this tussle. Von der Leyen saying that you can't pay for it in rubles. The Germans are kind of finagling the rules by the looks of things. Rachel Morrison is here to update us. Rachel, what is the latest here? Yes, it's all been about the currency um, that you pay for this gas in. I mean, this has long been the argument. But as you say, it's really the kind of firming up of these positions with the European Union saying today that even opening a rubles account will breach sanctions and the companies saying that they believe that they can pay in euros, it will be converted into rubles by Gazprom Bank without breaching the sanctions. So it's really trying to figure out who who's going to win. I mean, in a way, it seems as though the ball is in the Kremlin's court. They need to say what terms they will accept for payment. But we found out that with Poland and Bulgaria, there was no communication. They didn't tell them. So countries like Germany could be waiting right up until the last moment and hear nothing, which kind of adds to the drama of this. No one knows what the Kremlin's move will be. So, Rachel, paint us a picture of how this could possibly escalate, particularly when it comes to the interpretation of what you are allowed and not allowed to do under the sanctions. If the EU is saying, in fact, that opening a ruble account to buy this gas is a violation, but companies are claiming otherwise, who is to decide who's actually in the right and who's in the wrong here? The problem comes at the point where the companies say they've paid for the contract in euros, and they say that the payment is complete. If Russia doesn't accept that and says the payment is not complete, there's this kind of grey area where the contract hasn't been fulfilled, payment hasn't been received, yet the European company does not have their money. And that's what Europe's worried about. That period of time, they don't know how long it could be in transit for between the units within Gazprom Bank. And that's where they see the risk. Somebody told me, Rachel, that, that what it's going to come down to is whether or not the European company gives the order for the currency to be transferred. It can transfer the money into the account, but if it then has to give the order for that money to be transferred into rubles, that is a violation of sanctions. If they don't give that order and that money is just taken by the Russians, then they are okay. Is that really what we're coming down to here? I think it it could, uh, yes, because Gazprom Bank as an, an entity has not been sanctioned for the reason that they didn't want to disrupt this payment process. Um, what it will come down to is, the, I think it's down to communication as well. What the companies really want is a very clear in writing stance from the European Commission, what they accept, what they don't accept under the sanctions. Because today was a verbal briefing to journalists, which one of the uh, countries has said, we don't count that as formal guidance. You need to tell us. And they want Gazprom Bank and Russia to say how they will be viewing the payment. Because I think it comes down to, for the companies, that uncomfortable point where the money has left their account, but they haven't had um, acknowledgement of payment. And Bulgaria and Poland, they paid in euros. They didn't hear anything. And the euros were sent back to them. 
Now, Rachel, are we hearing of any companies having trouble actually getting a hold of these rubles in, in the first place to actually make these payments? We know, for instance, that the beginning of all of this, when sanctions first came down in Russia, that was the issue, is that the accessibility to rubles suddenly became yeah. very, very difficult. What are we hearing on the ground now? The companies won't need to source the rubles themselves. They that will be done by Gazprom Bank. They are responsible for that currency exchange. So I think that that issue would no longer right. be the case. It's the central bank that ultimately is making that transfer, but it's a question of who tells who to make that transfer, i.e. who is responsible for giving the order to transfer it into rubles. It's, going to, it's a fascinating story. As you say, we need some clarity here. We need some really clear written down rules. Um, thank you very much indeed, Rachel. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. We are in the midst of reporting season. We're getting a lot of kind of macro information from companies. One of the most sort of informative is Unilever, the huge consumer giant. Alan Jope spoke on inflation. He spoke about the Russian situation to Bloomberg earlier. We are seeing inflation across uh, basically all input costs, agricultural commodities, petrochemical derived materials, freight, distribution, energy, labor. And uh, the, therefore, the majority of uh, the sector's growth and our growth is coming from pricing. At the moment, we're not seeing down trading, but one of Unilever's strengths is we have a portfolio that typically offers a good, better, best alternative in each category. And so we cover that risk a little bit by having um, offerings at the lower price points for uh, people who are feeling the pinch from inflation these days. Yeah. So is it changing consumer habits? Can you do you see any patterns of people buying maybe some of the more expensive premium, but also much more of, of the cheaper offerings? Uh, well, we're very sensitive to the pressure that household budgets are under right now. And you're quite right. We're seeing both things happening. There is up trading going on as people treat themselves to a, a little luxury. Um, when they uh, don't have the ability to invest, for example, in a holiday or a new durable good, um, but also some down trading. And the down trading that we've seen has been particularly in Latin America and a little bit in Europe. Uh, overall, though, uh, in the world, we're not seeing huge uh, shifts in consumption other than uh, people are obviously having to carry the inflationary costs that are being passed through. So how much more do you think inflation can go up? And again, what does it mean for your input costs? Yeah, um, we had uh, guided a, uh, one quarter ago that we saw input costs uh, for the year uh, increasing for Unilever by 3.6 billion euros. We've now upped that estimate to 4.8 billion euros for the year. Uh, we're largely covered uh, now on those costs. Um, but I don't have a crystal ball on uh, what the future holds. I'm not sure when peak inflation will be. And therefore, we're uh, putting a higher priority on uh, agility and our ability to respond than we are on predictive ability. What are you currently doing in Russia? What's the situation like on the ground? Yeah, our first concern, of course, is for our team in Ukraine, who have done a magnificent job. Uh, they're all safe, well accounted for. Um, and quite remarkably, they've got our business back up and running uh, in Ukraine. As far as Russia, when it comes to Russia, we want to be part of uh, international sanctions. Um, we have ceased um, all imports and exports of products in and out of Russia. 
Uh, we've curtailed any further capital investment into the country. We've stopped all advertising spend and we will not profit from our presence uh, in Russia. Frankly, our only concern there is not a commercial concern. It's to secure the safety of our people on the ground in Russia as well. Um, Russia represents about 1% of Unilever's turnover. So the commercial materiality is not significant. This is really about uh, complying with international sanctions and protecting the, the well-being of our people on the ground there. Have you had any discussions with Russian authorities on what they would do with your operations? Again, we're hearing that you know they could um, put some of their own chief executives in charge of some of these, you know, for example, your operations in Russia or even nationalize them. You're, you're exactly right, Francine. The Russian authorities have been crystal clear that companies um, operating in the country have got three options. The first is uh, to continue operations in our case, albeit on a very curtailed basis. The second is to transfer ownership to um, a Russian uh, business. And the third is that any kind of exit will be seen as abandonment. And the Russian authorities um, have indicated they will seize and nationalize not just physical assets, but also uh, intellectual property. And for us, that means our brands. And so um, oddly enough, the way we think uh, that we're best able to protect our people and uh, maintain pressure on uh, the Russian economy is by maintaining a minimal presence in the country. The CEO of Unilever, Alan Jope, speaking to Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix a little bit earlier on. Plenty of stocks to talk about here in Europe. Only a couple really firmly in focus stateside today. Twitter, one of them, Facebook or Meta as it is now known, really the standout story. The stock currently up by 17%. We'll talk about it next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. 48 minutes past the hour. You are listening to The Cable. So the standout stock story stateside today, definitely meta platforms, the parents of Facebook. Uh, the company currently up around 17%. Uh, this after it reported uh, first quarter numbers. The real standout there was the pickup that they finally seen uh, in daily users. The number they reported Wednesday, 1.96 billion for the flagship platform. Uh, we saw the first ever decline in the December quarter. Analysts had expected that number to come through a little bit lower. The other thing you need to know that is that the stock has been absolutely pummeled uh, over the last few months, and as a result of which the bar coming into these numbers uh, was actually fairly low. Let's talk about this and let's talk a little bit about Twitter as well. Uh, Kurt Wagner joins us. Uh, he is certainly one of the go-to guys here at Bloomberg to understand what is happening here. Kurt, let's just talk a little bit about the share price reaction, first of all, in Meta. Is this to do with the numbers they've produced overnight or is this to do with the fact that actually the share price has been absolutely smashed of late? I think it's a little bit of both because, to your point, I I think there's a lot of people who would say that, that Facebook has been undervalued for the last couple months. I mean, they, they've taken a 50%, nearly 50% cut <clears throat> or drop in, in the stock price just since the beginning of the year. And that was really on one bad quarter. And so I'm sure there's a lot of people who are sitting here thinking, okay, well, well this stock feels a little undervalued, but let's see uh, what, what happens. And when they came out and simply showed, hey, look, we still have a little bit of room to grow with our user base and uh, you know, the business is doing fine despite all of these challenges. There's probably a lot of people who jumped on that and said, OK, we thought it was undervalued. Now we feel that we know it's undervalued. Let's, uh, let's get back in, even though the earnings themselves were just so-so. 
Now, Kurt, lots of attention, understandably, on the user growth for this most recent set of results because that was the big uh, sticking point last time. But are you seeing anything from these latest results that show Facebook or Meta addressing the more fundamental issue of the challenge of creating something that will uh, rise up to the dominance of TikTok, especially in a short-form video space? You know, there was nothing that I saw in the numbers themselves, so it really depends on how much stock you want to put into what executives say. Because if you listen to the earnings call um, yesterday with analysts, CEO Mark Zuckerberg, COO Sheryl Sandberg, they were both incredibly bullish on uh, Facebook's version of TikTok, which they call Reels. It's a short-form video product that's mostly popular inside of Instagram, but it's also on the Facebook uh, service. And, you know, they talked a lot about the potential for advertising on that platform, said it could be as big as, uh, you know, the advertising business they built around disappearing stories, which is significant. So, you know, the numbers themselves, I don't think there's anything necessarily that that jumps out. But if you believe that they're, uh, you know, in the potential of that, they're certainly talking as if it's going to be a big business for them in the future. And so it sort of depends on on how much you want to trust those two. Christine brings up, the, brings up the user growth. So let's just kind of spend just a moment talking about that. Every additional user is kind of incremental revenue for the business. Nevertheless, are the users they're attracting now as valuable as the users they were attracting two, three years ago? In short answer, no. And uh, it's not just two or three years ago, but really uh, um, probably five years since this has happened. And that's because the most valuable users, at least from a dollar amount, the amount of advertising revenue they can make off of an individual user, come from North America, come from the U.S. and Canada primarily. Those are just the biggest advertising markets. Then you move to Europe, similar, um, and they've reached a plateau. And, and certainly in the U.S., they're starting to plateau in, in Europe. Um, and so a lot of the new users they're getting are from uh, you know markets that are emerging, uh, you know India, for example, uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, regions where people are coming onto the internet for the first time, and there's just not as robust of an of an uh, advertising uh, business in those different regions, at least right now. So a lot of the people they are adding are not necessarily the you know most valuable, if you want to say, from a, from a business standpoint, and that's been the case for a few years now. Okay, any updates on how the Metaverse project is going? We know that Mark Zuckerberg was really banking on this as kind of the, the next game changer for the company. What's uh, the latest situation there in terms of how that's developing? Uh, we just know it's going to be expensive, and it's going to take a long time for uh, Meta to kind of recoup any of those costs. And that was reiterated on the call yesterday as well. Um, they said that you know it could be as much as a decade before uh, the AR and VR efforts that the company has um, are, are going to start contributing to the revenue and the profits in a meaningful way. And so, you know, that's uh, a lot of expense up front for again something that they believe is going to be big, but you're you're kind of taking a risk and, and trusting that Mark Zuckerberg knows what he's doing here. Um, in the immediate term, they did you know confirm something that they had said last year, but they reconfirmed. Um, that they're going to have a new version of uh, their their Meta Quest headset coming out later this year. Um, so they're still building, you know, new VR devices kind of in the immediate future. But again, a lot of the long-term value they see in the metaverse is still uh, years away. So normally at this point, we'd be looking forward to the Twitter call. That's not going to be happening. We've got the Twitter numbers it's today. Not. 
but but with the take uh, maybe we would be looking forward to it actually but with the takeover by Elon Musk that is now done and dusted all with all guidance has now been withdrawn how are we going to how are we going to figure out how twitter is doing I, this is going to be uh, the challenge for people like me who report on the company yeah. because you're right they're not going to have uh, public earnings calls anymore once twitter is a private company right and so understanding the user growth understanding the revenue um, all of that is presumably going to be hidden or behind closed doors. It'll be up to you know reporters like myself, hopefully, to try and get some of that info. But I'd also argue that it's going to become less important, right? I mean, those numbers are very important because Twitter is publicly traded and because people are um, you know buying into the company as a stock in, in hopes that those numbers are going to go up. If the opportunity to do that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, presumably, it doesn't really matter how many users Twitter has, um, because you know whether it succeeds or not is all going to be on Elon Musk. And so, um, it'll be interesting. You're right. I don't think we're going to have nearly. I know we're not going to have nearly as much information as we do today. But I also wonder how important it'll be. It's going to be fascinating to watch, as you say, Kurt. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, Kurt Wagner, joining us uh, on what is happening with Meta and Twitter. Um, that just about wraps things up for the cable uh, from Christine and myself. I hope you enjoyed the show. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg.